This morning's reading is from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Ephesians chapter 4, commencing at verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speak the truth in love. We will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. Well, um, again, good morning, and uh, if you're joining us for the first time back after um, COVID restrictions, great to have you with us. Um, we're very glad to have you in the building, and um, thank you for people wearing their masks and, and doing as we need. That's very appreciated. You're joining us uh, into week four of our vision series as we think a little bit about what it might look like for us as a church over the next five years to be a church here in this part of Sydney, the Lower North Shore. And we've, we've started, we laid a foundation for ourselves, which was uh, to be captivated by the gracious work of Christ. And since that foundation, we've tried to lay down some what I'd describe as planks, missional planks, part of our mission statement of the things that I want to suggest we as God's people here should be committed to over the next five years. The first one was praying big prayers shaped by the gospel. The second was bringing friends to faith. That's what we spoke about last week. And this week we turn, uh, I guess, more to an internal reflection about what the life of God's church is meant to be. Um, and with that, I want to ask you a question. Why does the church exist? 
Why does the church exist? Lots of people have different, re- different answers to that question, and in part that is because the church exists for a number of reasons, not one particular reason. Um, but I want to suggest to you today that there is an overwhelming priority for the church, for God's church, and it's that priority that I reflect on. And I'll use that passage from Ephesians 4, which Angela just read to us, to think through this issue. Now, I know that this, ch- this church, under its previous rector, Graham, spent um, many weeks over the years looking at the book of Ephesians. It was one of his favourite books. So I don't plan to reveal, I suspect, anything new to those who are long-time members of the church about what the passage is saying. But I want to take the central idea that's emerging out of this passage and reflect on that. And, and think about the key metaphor, the key image that Paul is using in that passage that was just read. It's the metaphor, particularly in 11, verses 11 to 16, the second half of the body, of the, of the human body in a sense, representative of the church as a whole. Paul doesn't just use it in Ephesians 4, he also uses it in, in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, he uses that same image. But here particularly, he uses the image because he's trying to, trying to point to the, to the issue of growth. Now in verse, it's actually verse 15, not verse 11, He has this, he says, We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Really helpful verse and captures in a sense, I think what all of verses 11 to 16 is really focusing on. It repeats these words like grow and mature. It has the other image of an infant because in a sense, one of the key purposes, priorities, focuses of a church is to grow people spiritually to grow people spiritually. That's why we actually get together as God's people. There's something unique about when you meet with God's people, which cannot in fact be done in other spaces, which allows us to grow spiritually. What do I mean by spiritual maturity? That's a bit of a buzzword that um, you you often hear actually at the time of doing a vision statement or a, a mission statement for a church, spiritual maturity. What do we mean by that? Well, there's an interesting moment in Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 8, where Jesus, is, he's, as, he, as we know from his accounts, he spent the early part of his life, his ministry life, going around and, and teaching and doing miracles. And at this point, a centurion comes to Jesus and says, I have a slave, a servant, who's very ill. Could you please heal them? And Jesus is about to go with the centurion to heal, and the centurion says, no. I understand your authority. You just have to say it, actually, and it will happen. And Matthew says, interesting, he says, Jesus was amazed. Amazed. He says, I've never met someone with such faith. Jesus is often amazed at people who show great confidence in God. Great confidence in God. And in a sense, I think to grow in spiritual maturity is to grow in your confidence in God. To grow in your confidence in God. Now, what does it mean? Why is spiritual maturity such an important thing? We, uh, we live in a time and a place where I think parents spend a lot of time thinking about their kids and what they'll grow in. And we have a whole list of things that we want our kids to grow in. We want them to grow in their relational skills. That's one of the key things they learn, I can tell you, from a, having a young child who's in kindergarten. She's learning a lot of relational skills at the moment. The playground is a great uh, testing place for all your social skills. You want them to grow, of course, physically. You want them to grow emotionally. Um, uh, You want them to grow intellectually. 
But I, I want to say to you that I think actually spiritual growth is the key. Here's what Paul says, this really helpful thing in verse 14. He says, then we will no longer be infants as, you know, as a result of spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Now that, what a, another great image there. His point is that spiritual maturity is actually the foundation. You know, it's what gives you real stability. Having a deep confidence in God actually gives you stability in all other parts of your life. Think about, again, the story in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree that they're asked not to. It's, I guess, in a sense, a moment of spiritual immaturity, deep spiritual immaturity, especially if you think about spiritual maturity in terms of confidence in God. Right? At that moment, they show no confidence in what God has said. And so they do their own thing. They show greater confidence in their own reading of the situation. And what's really interesting, of course, in the story of Genesis 3 is what happens as a result, isn't it? It's not a standalone event. The whole point of that account is that out of that moment of spiritual immaturity, of, of spiritual infancy, so to speak, comes so much pain and brokenness. You know, relationally, emotionally, physically, um, all of that is undermined at that moment. It's a really great insight, actually, that when your spiritual foundations, your confidence in God is undermined, it has flow-on effects, actually, to all those other things which we're trying to grow anyway as people. I remember um, a girl in a previous congregation that I was in, she was, she was a young woman who had come to faith, and her, her life of faith was very much filled by a lot of the emotional experiences. She, she particularly enjoyed the music at church and the experience of people and, and the, the community fellowship of the church. Anyway, she came to a season where she learnt a few things. Someone taught her a few things which weren't particularly helpful. They weren't really in line with, I guess, what you would describe as kind of the central ideas of the Christian faith. And this really undermined her faith. She, she had a real sense of the things that what she'd believed before, she didn't believe anymore. She wasn't sure if she believed them. You could say that her confidence in God had really been undermined at this point. That was bad enough. What was really interesting was that her life then became this place of real anxiety. You know, emotionally, she was very uncertain. It really shook her to the core. Relationally, it really challenged her. A lot of her relationships became very shaky for a period of time. And I, I think... That was such a great reminder to me that if, you, if your spiritual foundations are not strong, it goes on to impact so much else of our life. We live in such a materialistic culture where it says oh, it's all about your, ex your physical experiences. The Bible's constant challenge for us is actually that the spiritual foundations of who we are are actually the crucial to every other part of our life flourishing and growing. And so growing people, spiritual is important. You see, because spiritual maturity brings deep stability. Deep stability. It is not a case that the church's responsibility is to grow people spiritually because the church is the spiritual sphere of your life. And so therefore, it must take care of you spiritually. That is, of course, true. But the understanding of Scripture is that as God's people are strengthened spiritually, they're equipped actually to live all of their life. 
as the church does its job of growing people spiritually. I'm not talking about growing people relationally. I mean, all of those things are good. Emotionally, intellectually, maybe the church will do all of those things. But the church is not primarily just a community where you get to spend time with people you like. I mean, if you've been part of church long enough, you've met someone you don't like. That's the nature of church. No, the point of church is people who meet together to grow each other spiritually, to lay down the fundamental foundations of our life. Now, the question, I guess, is who's the primary beneficiary of this task of the church? Who is the primary beneficiary? When I was, um, when I was a, a student, I, told, I think I told this story last week in my sermon. Well, I told you that I was a boarder. Well, I lived in a boarding house from year 8 to year 12. And one of the dynamics of um, boarding house life is that uh, the younger serve the older. The year 7 and 8 serve the 11 and 12s. And this was particularly true in the, in, the, in the dining hall. So everyone would sit on a table. There'd be one student from each year at the table, six seats. And the year 7 and 8's job was to set the table, to bring the meals, and then to pack the table up at the end. And those year 11 and 12s were like kings in as a boys' school. They were like kings at that table. And those year 7 and 8s were like paupers. And I tell you, year 11 and 12 boys, they used to eat like pigs and on purpose as well, because they just love the idea that the young would serve them. Now, that sounds archaic, doesn't it? It sounds like, well, that's, that's almost barbaric, isn't it? But all of our, a lot of our organisations still operate on this basic hierarchy. I mean, even corporations, which exist for the benefit of shareholders and pay out dividends, for example, the person who still gets paid the most is the CEO, isn't he? Uh, or the chairman of the board. That, that's just the nature of the way that we, we think. You know? The more experienced you are, the more you should be blessed, the more you should re- be remunerated, the more you should be honoured. And of course, that's not completely untrue. The Bible calls us to honour our parents, to honour those who are older amongst our group. But interestingly, what I want to show you is that the dynamic of Scripture is different when it comes to this, uh, this question of maturity and immaturity. Look at the passage again. 7 to 11, there's, this, there's all these... Um, references to God giving gifts because this is at the core of this little section is that everyone has been given different gifts everyone is handed out gifts in verses 7 to 11 Jesus comes he hands out gifts he ascends he descends he hands out gifts but interestingly verse 14 sorry verse 11 those gifts are given so that infants are matured so that the young are matured those who've been given gifts are given them for the, for the primary purpose of maturing the young in faith, the spiritually immature in our community. And this dynamic actually lives in Scripture. I haven't just pulled it out of one passage and tried to apply it broadly. It's actually a broad principle in Scripture. Here's some passages for us. Uh, let's start with the blind at the bottom and work chronologically. Deuteronomy 11.19 is written to parents. Um, and Moses, who wrote Deuteronomy, says... You shall, parents, you shall teach God's law to your children, uh, talking to them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Now, this is so interesting because, of course, in Moses' culture, certainly in the surrounding nations, the truth was that children were a commodity that was used by the family to generate you know, food and, and to feed the family and do the work. But Moses says, parents... Your primary job, because you know why I say it's a primary? Because look at, you're meant to do it when you're 
talking to them, when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. This, in other words, every single part of your life as a parent is consumed with teaching them God's law, giving them confidence in God, spiritually building them up. It's really interesting. I think in our culture, we probably do have a lot of parents who are consumed with their children, but I'm not sure if, as parents, we're consumed with their spiritual maturity. But that's what Moses says. Uh, Titus 2, back up to the top, um, great passage. Uh, he's talking about the dynamic between older men and younger men, older women, younger men, women in the church. He says, older women are to teach what is good and so train the young. And by inference, of course, older men are meant to do the same thing. There's this dynamic of older teaching younger, mature feeding the immature. Ephesians 6, same uh, letter that we've been reading a little further on, he talks to fathers, he says, Fathers, bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, really interesting because, of course, in Greek culture at the time, the father had nothing to do with the upbringing of a child. And here Paul charges them in their household with being responsible for the spiritual maturity of their children. There's this dynamic you see in Scripture, in the family unit and more broadly in the church as a whole, where the older grow the younger, where the mature grow the immature, where the spiritually enriched grow the spiritually poor. That's the dynamic of Scripture. And, you know, I think um, at times churches have been really bad at this, of course. At times churches have been very bad at caring for young people. And we're grappling with the ramifications of that as, as, as the church, broadly speaking. It is true at St. Stephen's, we've, we've, we've had a great history of this, actually. There's two great windows at the back. I know I talked about stained glass windows a couple of weeks ago. Bear with me, I'll talk about them again. There's two great stained glass windows up the back of the building uh, where the baptism font is. Um, they are gifted. One is from the girls of the Sunday school in 1894 and the other one's from the boys of the Sunday school in 1894. You know, from like within 10 years, we have these significant markers of the place of children in the church. And the baptism font itself, you know, is placed at the entry door to the building because what it's meant to say is that if you're young in faith, if you're coming to the faith, you are welcome, because the baptism font is the place that you start your, your spiritual journey, right? And there it is at the entry to the building. Because God's people have a very prominent place for those who are young, for those who are infants. Because in fact, the purpose of meeting as God's people is to grow the spiritually young. The purpose of being God's people is to mature young people into mature faith, into, into a deep deep confidence in God. That's one of the primary focuses of us as a church. And look, I want to say as well, even in, in recent days, I've, I applaud the parish council and the wardens uh, and the leaders of the church who made the decision to invest in this new position that we've advertised and filled for a kids and youth minister. Uh, that's a five-day-a-week position. It has housing. The purpose of spending a significant amount of money on this role is we want to invest in young people people who are young in faith and young in life and grow them. And I think that's a great decision that's been made. And I'm really glad that we've found a great candidate to fill that role. But there are blind spots in our ministry to this. 
there are, apart from anything else, we don't have a lot of young people in our church, even though our area is filled with them. This has to strike us as a significant deficit in our ministry. The reality as well is we just don't have enough people who are invested in teaching young people. So our kids' zone at the moment is one class. It needs to be two. In fact, we're restructuring next week to have two classes. Our switch ministry doesn't have... It has one lay teacher. Jill helps out at the moment. We don't have enough leaders in that. Our SRE ministry, which reaches 240 uh, students every week with the gospel for half an hour. Extraordinary opportunity. There's lots of parts of Sydney which don't have that weekly SRE program. We have that. And yet we have two lay uh, volunteers who help teach. We, we definitely need SRE teachers in that ministry. Each of these are such great opportunities which I don't think we've really taken hold of just yet. And they present us with opportunities going forward. Now, for that reason, actually, I, I really want to lay down this third plank of our mission statement. He, uh, so we started, as I said, with praying big prayers shaped by the gospel and bringing friends to faith. And this week, here's the third one, growing the young in their devotion to God's word. We'll get to the second half of it in a minute. But I really want, I really want to commend this to us as a parish to say that our focus over the next five years has to be in this, growing the young in life and in faith. Okay? Young in life, young in faith. We have to commit to this. We have to commit to it because it's a biblical dynamic, a biblical priority for the church, but it's also a missional priority because that is the nature of our place. If we bring our friends to faith, we cannot leave them after they make a commitment to the Lord at that point. We want them to grow, right, so they grow from infants into mature people. And so they themselves start pouring into new believers and into young, the young in our community. We need to commit to this. We need to, and we need to commit to it. We need to continue to commit to it financially, but we need to also commit to it in terms of our energies, our ministry energies. We need to make this a priority and a focus if we're going to be true, both the dynamic of the gospel that's at shape in God's church and if we're going to be true to the mission that surrounds us. Of course, what's difficult about this, if you're, I sense often at times people are very uncomfortable with how they can actually do that. What's interesting is that Paul says that the key to growing people is verse 15. It's speaking the truth in love. All right, see, verse, uh, I've put verse 17, I apologize. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we will grow. And if you're wondering, how do I invest in the young people, people who are young in their faith or young in life, Paul says the key to growing people in spiritual maturity is speaking the truth in love. Out of that, that's why we'll grow, right? It's a beautifully rich little phrase. But even as you reflect on it, you realize it's a phrase that requires such great precision to be able to speak the truth in love. Uh, I've been watching this show on Netflix called Lennox Hill, which is about an upcoming uh, hospital in New York. It's been re redone and it's got focused on their neurosurgery department. I'm always amazed by neurosurgeons because they take this ridiculously sharp implement, the scalpel, and then they operate in the most sensitive, life-altering part of the body, the brain. And they'll go in there and they'll see the area that they need to cut out and they will just cut it out. 
their training has equipped them to precisely cut away the tumour or the growth or whatever it is that is impeding that person's health. There's such precision in it. And Paul's, Paul's call here that we speak the truth in love is a particularly precise statement. But it's a very difficult statement, actually, to err. Because generally speaking, we err on one side or the other of this balance. We might be someone who's soft and warm. We hate conflict. We just want to say things that are encouraging. And so we'll really land on the love end of things. But of course, we know the challenge of that is that you might actually give them the wrong kind of confidence in their life. It doesn't actually grow them. Or we love conflict. We're a bit self-righteous deep down, a bit judgmental. And so we'll speak truth. We'll speak truth very strongly, but we'll crush people. What Paul is asking us to do is to grow people by speaking the truth in love, by finding this extraordinarily precise but powerful intervention in people's lives. Do you feel overwhelmed by that? That's the responsibility that I guess I'm charging each of us with. Do you feel a sense that you might have tried that before, but you have landed too far on one end? You've spoken love, but it hasn't really changed them and shifted them. Or you've spoken truth and it's just crushed them and cut them off from you. Paul says you need to speak the truth in love. And so the question that comes to us is how can we possibly do that? Isn't that just the job of like someone who's not just gone to Bible college, but done some kind of counseling degree and can understand people really well? I mean, the challenge of this passage is no, that's not it at all. Paul's point in Ephesians 4 is actually that each person in the body has been gifted for the task of speaking the truth in love. But how do we do it? Well, look at verse 11. Verse 11 has this list of people who've been gifted in the church. It says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. That's really interesting. That's a bit of a foundation list of gifts. But the purpose of all those people is ultimately to equip his people for works of service. That's, that's everyone in this building. And, and at the heart of that list of people is this one basic skill. There are no more apostles. Depending on how you read the word prophets, there may still be prophets. There are definitely evangelists, pastors and teachers. And the purpose and the thing at the heart of all those gifts is they're people who teach God's word. They're people who open up the scriptures. They're people who help us to understand God's message. And so by inference, what they're equipping the rest of the people to do is to bring that word of God to bear on people's lives. And that is the key, you see, to growing people, actually, is to bring the word of God to bear on people's lives. And that's, that is actually really important because sometimes what puts us off from entering into someone's life and, and seeking to grow them in their, their spiritual maturity is that we think, well, I, I need some kind of deeper insight into human, uh, the human intuition. I need to understand people better. I need to have a greater EQ level. I need to maybe be counselled or have greater levels of experience. I can only do that if I'm a really experienced person who's gone through all the highs and lows they've gone through. But the problem with that is twofold. One, if you counsel someone, if you seek to grow someone out of your own experience, you might actually lead them the wrong way because <laughs> you may not have learnt the thing you're meant to have learnt. 
So rather than growing them, you'll actually hinder them. Or actually even worse still is that you will counsel them in exactly the right thing. But then their confidence will not be in God, it will be in you. Their confidence will be in you. And of course, if we've talked about spiritual maturity as, as finding confidence in God, you've actually undermined the thing that you launched into hoping to achieve, which is to give people confidence in God. No, that's why, actually, the key is to bring God's Word to the bear in people's lives. Because then what they start to have confidence in is God himself. And, and Paul then goes on in verse 16 to say, actually, that the point of God's word is ultimately to lead us to Jesus Christ. He says that, um, that uh, it is out of Christ, verse 16, from him, from Christ, grows the church. Because real spiritual maturity actually comes from knowing Jesus Christ. It's when we bring God's word to bear so that they come to know Jesus better that actually people grow in their confidence in God. Because Jesus is the embodiment of that great balance of truth and love that Paul said. As you bring the gospel to bear, as you bring what Jesus has done to bear on a person's life, to speak into their life, to inform their understanding of themselves and the world and God, the richer will be their confidence, says Paul. Because it is out of Jesus that spiritual maturity comes. Not out of your wisdom, not out of your intellect, but out of knowing Jesus Christ. Jesus is the embodiment of truth and love. And he's a brilliant example. On the cross, Jesus says a few different things. This is one of his key, key lines on those last moments of his life before, he, uh, before he's put in the tomb. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. I think this is such an extraordinarily pregnant and powerful phrase because in it is so much. See, right here, Jesus is doing exactly the thing that Paul said that we need to do. Do you see the truth in this? He says, they don't know what they're doing. When you believe Jesus, when you believe the gospel is true, not just you know about it or you can articulate it, but you believe it, you've taken it on, you've said, I, I think that that is an accurate reflection. One of the things you have to come to terms with is that you don't know what you're doing. You, you have to come to terms with your own limitations, your own brokenness, your own culpability for Jesus' death. I mean, he's saying it, of course, about Jewish people who are gathered at his feet and have just sent him to the cross. But by inference, he's saying it about us too. They don't know what they're doing. To believe the gospel is to actually believe the, the fundamental limitations that we have. To see ourselves in light of that moment. I am as responsible for Jesus Christ going to the cross as those Jewish people who stood in that courtyard and cried, crucify him. And, and when you come to see that, what that will do is will shift your confidence from yourself. But the, there's a balance there, isn't there? And it's this. Father, forgive them. If the gospel says that you're more sinful than you realize, then it also says that God is kinder than you deserve. He is being crucified by them. And at that very moment, he is saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And you say, what that does, not only does it shift our confidence from ourself, 
Not only does it attack at the heart of modern humanism, it re-centers our confidence on God because it says God, when experiencing the very worst of us, could love us to the depths of the cross itself. Now, if he'll love you like that, won't that draw you to him? Won't that give you the kind of confidence that you need? Won't that empower you to live your life in light of him more and more? We need the gospel. We need to preach the gospel to each other. We need to, if you're a mature person, and there are a lot of mature people in this congregation who have done their Christian walk for many decades, church doesn't exist for you. You are God's gift to the young in our fellowship. Your responsibility is to grow infants in faith so their lives will be built more and more on this reality that despite knowing us at our worst, God loves us to his heights. That is our responsibility. And I really want to commend this to us. We have to make sure that we are not a parish that finds ourselves gathered into groups of mature people with no concern for those who are young in life and young in faith. Because the dynamic of the gospel is Jesus Christ who came and became a child himself so that he might bless us with a deep confidence that says that God will love us when we are at our worst. Let me pray for us. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that your church is just so completely different to any other space in this world because it's shaped by your love and your gospel, which is so different to any other message or truth that we've encountered. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who became a child for us, who bore all of the resemblance of a human in infancy for us, who became weak and meek and mild for us, so that we might be raised up and might grow in our confidence in you. And Lord, I pray that you would bless us as a church, that we would become a church that is deeply committed to and effective in growing both those who are young in life and young in their faith into deep spiritual maturity, into a deep confidence in your goodness and your mercy and in your reliability. Father, I pray that you'd raise up amongst us mature followers of Christ whose commitment is to grow the young in our fellowship. And I pray this in